the human race has excelled and progressed in many impressive ways over the past hundred years. One such way we've excelled is in the area of healthcare. Life expectancy has been on the rise due to modern medicine and new health procedures and surgeries. We understand what is more, most helpful in producing a long and healthy life, and we really do understand the human anatomy better than ever before. And since the 1900s, the life expectancy for humans in the U.S. has increased dramatically, going from an average of 46 years to 77 years for men, and an average of 48 years to 81 years for women. We, on average, live about 60 to 70% longer than those 100 years ago. But despite all of this innovation, all of these advancements, all of the progress that we've seen in the medical field here today, there's still the failure to cure one of the most pressing problems to man on earth. And that is the problem of death. Death is one of the main reminders that despite all the progress we can make, whether in technology or healthcare, we as the human race cannot escape the inevitability that we will all one day certainly die. All we can do is delay it for a certain amount of time. Death is incredibly unpleasant. It is ugly and it is unavoidable. And while it is one of the worst things that we could possibly think of or imagine, the reality is that death is merely symptomatic of a deeper and greater problem that exists in each and every one of us here this morning. Death, like the annoying check engine light on your car, continually alerts us to the reality that there is something dreadfully wrong in each and every one of us. And if it's not fixed, it will lead to an even worse fate. Death ultimately alerts us to the infinite danger of eternal separation from God due to our indwelling sin against him. And so when confronted with the reality of death, it is meant to prod us towards a solution. And not just any solution, but the solution that is found only in Jesus Christ and his victorious resurrection over death. In the face of death, we must go to Jesus, who is our source of life, a compassionate friend, and Lord over death itself. We must look alone to Jesus in life and death. And this is what our text here reveals to us this morning. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to John 11, the text that we just read. John 11, 17 through 44. As we come to this text, we find that Jesus and his disciples are entering Judea. And this region is where Jesus was just nearly stoned to death by the crowds for claiming to be the Son of God. And yet, here he is, once more, in this territory, going there. And he makes his way to this dangerous area because Lazarus, a good friend of his, has just died. And so he goes there not only for Lazarus, whom he loves, but also Mary and Martha. He makes this way to this area, despite the dangers, to comfort them and to bring them hope. 
and it will be in this region, right outside of Bethany, that we first come to see Jesus as the source of life. When Jesus arrives at Bethany, we find that Lazarus has been dead for four days already. And this important information tells us several different things, but the main thing that we must not miss from this is the reality that Lazarus is very, very dead. Now, if you've seen the movie, The Princess Bride, you would know that he wasn't just mostly dead like Wesley in this movie. And for those of you who haven't seen this movie, uh, spoiler alert, but there's a place where the main character, Wesley, supposedly dies from a life-sucking machine of death. But it turns out that this machine didn't completely kill him as they originally thought. He was only mostly dead, as they say, and because of this, they're able to bring him back to life through a magical potion uh, with that crazy doctor there on the right, because he wasn't dead, dead. Well, the scenario with Jesus here and Lazarus isn't this. No, Lazarus was completely and utterly dead. So know that this isn't some kind of prince's bride stuff where he was only mostly dead. And so by Jesus arriving four days later after his death, it was completely obvious to all from his dead, lifeless corpse. There was no way Lazarus was coming back from this like Wesley in that movie. And this was obvious as his body began to decay, as it became a putrid odor in the air as his body decomposed. And as the body decayed before their very eyes, it solidified in the minds of all who were there that he was certainly dead. And so as a result of this, we find Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, in the depths of great sorrow. The loss of a loved one is incredibly painful. And it's here that we find Mary and Martha mourning the loss of their beloved brother and with them many friends who have come to support them. And so while they are mourning their loss, they hear that Jesus has just arrived. And while Mary chooses to remain in the house to continue mourning the loss of her brother, Martha goes out to Jesus. And when she sees Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, despite this loss, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Martha, by testimony of her own words, believes strongly that Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. He could have done this as he's done for countless others around him. But though Jesus didn't do this, she still chooses to trust him in spite of this painful loss. She will continue to trust Jesus as God's Savior and Messiah. And her response here is commendable in many different ways. For in the midst of pain, suffering, and loss, she looked to Jesus in the midst of it all. And so Jesus, in response to Martha, lets her know that her faith isn't misplaced. She is right to trust him. And he assures Martha that Lazarus will indeed rise again. 
But it's here that Martha doesn't quite grasp what Jesus is saying to her. Martha, like the Pharisees of the day and many Jews, believe in a coming resurrection on the very last day. This will be when the dead are raised to life. And it's this common view that Martha supposes Jesus to be speaking of. And so she basically responds with, yeah, 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 I know this already. He'll rise on the last day. But that doesn't really help me now in the pain. And so Jesus takes what she knows, this resurrection on the last day when they will be raised to life, and he does something unexpectedly. He applies it to himself. And he says in response, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, Martha, I am that source of life and hope that you need to look to. I am the answer to the problem of death. And this life, this eternal life, is given to those who believe in me, who trust in me as the very source of life. For in Jesus, we are made whole and complete. In Jesus, we find fullness of life. In Jesus, we find hope and healing from the misery and emptiness we suffer apart from him. And so Jesus makes this staggering claim and then asks Martha a very, very important question. Do you believe us? Do you, Martha, believe that I am the very source of life and fullness? And really the same question could be asked of any of us here this morning. Do we believe that Jesus is the very source of life itself? Do we believe that he gives life, fullness of life, to those who believe in him and trust him with their life entirely? And in the case of Martha, she stunningly replies, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. She believes. And if Jesus truly contains all this power within himself, then he is most certainly the Savior of the world, and more importantly, the very Son of God. For God alone is the source of her life. And so Martha takes this leap into faith, and she trusts Jesus at his word. This is who Martha believes Jesus to be, even in the midst of of death taking place around her. He is the Son of God who is the resurrection and the source of life. And as we consider who Jesus is here this morning, I wonder if we believe what Jesus is saying about himself. Do you know Jesus to be your source of life or are you instead depending on something or someone else to be that what only Jesus can be. If what Jesus says here is true, 
then we must be plugged into him as the true source of life for us. And so as we continue to understand who Jesus is, I encourage you to evaluate your own relationship to him here this morning. Do you know Jesus personally? Have you experienced the resurrection and the life that he gives to those who trust him? Now, some of us here this morning may misunderstand what I'm saying. Some of us would say, yeah, I know about Jesus. I know Jesus in the sense of, like, I know Michael Jordan. I know about him, and I'm a fan of his game and skill, but I don't know him personally. And let me be clear, that is not the type of knowledge that I'm talking about here. Do you know Jesus like you know your own parents or friends around you and have a meaningful relationship to them? Do you know Jesus as the source of life personally? Or is this non-existent? This question is important for if we believe that Jesus is the very source of life, then we must ask ourselves, are we plugged into him as the source of our life through faith and trust and relationship? For just as a fan is unplugged from the wall, it may spin for a little bit, but eventually it'll stop spinning completely and will completely die, just like we will without Christ. So know Jesus personally as your source of life. Trust him. Look to him. Plug yourself into him through belief and faith and relationship. And if you have any further questions about how to do this, talk with us here this morning. Know Jesus as the source of life. After Martha professes her deep faith in Jesus and his identity, she then departs to get her sister. Because just as Martha needed Jesus, so now Mary does too. And in Jesus' interaction with Mary, we then come to see Jesus as a compassionate friend to sinners. So Martha goes to Mary, and he tells her, the master is calling, the rabbi is calling. And so Martha tells Mary this in private, because it seems that Jesus wants little attention during his visit. After all, the Jews in the region wanted him dead not too many days ago. So Mary goes immediately. And with her, many of her close friends go with her too. And they go with her, supposing that she's going to go to the tomb to mourn the death of her brother. But to their surprise, she instead makes her way to Jesus. And as Mary sees Jesus, she goes up to him and falls flat on her face before him at his feet. And she does this even though there were a number of her close friends with her. But she doesn't care. She falls down before Jesus because she is in deep pain, agony, and loss. She is hurting deeply. And with great loss and tears in her eyes, she says the exact same thing her sister did just moments ago. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's overtaken with the reality that her brother is certainly dead. She is filled with hopelessness and despair. And this love for her brother that she once had, vanquished by the cruelty of death. And when Jesus sees Mary weeping, and those around her weeping, 
he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Now, unfortunately, our translations here struggle to capture fully what Jesus is feeling at this moment. For being deeply moved in our text hardly does justice to what Jesus is feeling. This word here has connotations for animals snorting when being upset or angered. It has to do more with bristling up with agitation and anger, kind of like a bull that's getting ready to charge. And so when Jesus saw them crying in deep pain and agony, he was agitated. He was stirred up. He was angered. He was deeply troubled in this way. And we wonder, why was Jesus so stirred up? Why was he upset? Why was he angry when he saw all this pain and suffering around him? And this question, of course, has stirred no small controversy among commentators on this exact verse. You can find a multitude of different explanations. And while there are different answers and possibilities, I think at a minimum here, we can say that Jesus is upset due to the devastating effects of death and sin that he sees firsthand. He is upset and, and grieved as he sees the brokenness that he witnesses firsthand. He hates the grief and pain that comes to his people in the face of sin and death. He's angered by it. And I think we ourselves can understand this same emotion. If you've ever experienced the loss of a loved one, or if you've ever witnessed the loss of a loved one, then you know that there is often anger, there's often frustration, grief, and sorrow all mixed together. And when people lose a loved one, they often become deeply troubled and angered in the midst of death. It's just not right. Death isn't natural, and we all feel it intrinsically. And I think in a greater way, Jesus here, as our compassionate, greatest friend there ever was, who loves us deeply and sympathizes with our weaknesses, is experiencing the same kind of emotion. He is angered by death. And when he sees its effects, he is visibly upset. And so as we witness this, we also learn that he is sorrowful. And he begins to weep right after he asks them where they laid at Lazarus. He mourns with those who are hurting and in pain. And as Jesus weeps with those who weep, he sets the example for us. We learn that it's okay to feel sadness and grief. In fact, it's fitting and it's right to do so because death and suffering remind us that things are not yet right. We live in a broken world filled with brokenness around us. And so we don't pretend that things are okay when they're not. Instead, we weep. We grieve when we undergo pain, sorrow, and suffering. We don't pretend that we are immune to pain and suffering like Superman, but we express sorrow appropriately. 
for sorrow and grief. It's the appropriate and right response to a broken world that we live in. And when others around us experience pain and suffering, we similarly weep with those who weep, just as Jesus did for them. We don't make light of the great suffering people experience in or near that moment by simply saying it will all get better eventually, nor do we offer cliche sayings about how it will all work out in the end. Instead, as we look at Jesus, our Savior, we weep and bear the pain with those who are hurting. So in deep moments of hurt and grief, we as the people of God, we hurt with one another as the body of Christ. We bear each other's burdens in this way. For in doing so, we sympathize and relate appropriately as Jesus does in the face of death and tragedy. For we are not Stoics who are immune to pain, suffering, and loss, but real people with real emotions in the face of difficulty and suffering. We follow Jesus' example, who is our compassionate friend. So as we come back to Jesus, we find him weeping for Lazarus and those around him. And then the Jews began to interpret his tears among themselves. Some see Jesus' tears as a positive and good thing. And they say, see how he loved him. His tears evidence how much he loves Jesus and how much he hurts for the people there. But then there were also others who were antagonistic towards Jesus. And they said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? And it's in this statement that many of them demonstrated their unbelief. You can almost frame their words in this way. If you, Jesus, truly are the Messiah, then why didn't you keep Lazarus from dying? You must have not loved him all that much. And based upon these words, we read again that Jesus is deeply troubled. Same exact word as before. And in this, I think Jesus is angered with the antagonism of some of these Jews. Their words of doubt may have caused further harm to those who were already hurting from their loss. And their antagonistic unbelief certainly misinterpreted Jesus' tears for good. Now, when most of us are upset or angered, I think we often sin. We take our anger out at the person who caused us to be angry or upset. And I think this is why Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry and don't sin. When emotions run hot, they often lead us to lose control and to burn down the house around us. But in the case of Jesus, as we observe his actions, when we see him upset, angered, grieved, he remains fully in control. And he doesn't rebuke these scoffers and add further conflict to the already hurting people around him, but instead, in a calculated move, he directs his anger and his energy towards a solution for the main problem itself, death. And in doing so, Jesus foreshadows the ultimate solution found in his own coming resurrection in the days ahead. So Jesus, filled with emotion, comes to the tomb then 
where Lazarus was laid. And it's here that we come to see Jesus finally as Lord over death. Now, as we imagine the entrance of this tomb where Lazarus was laid, it might have looked something like this. And there would have been a great massive stone on front of it, and it would have been incredibly heavy and difficult to move. And this, of course, was intentional. It wasn't placed there by accident. It was there to keep grave robbers from robbing the graves. It was there to keep the terrible smell inside the tomb. And it would have kept animals from eating or distorting the dead bodies therein. To move the stone would have been difficult and hard. But to the surprise of the crowd and those around, Jesus says, remove the stone from the tomb. Remove it. And it's at this point that Martha interjects saying, but Lord, there's a stench that's been in there because he's been dead for four days. And you can almost hear her saying, don't bother doing this. It's not worth it just to see Lazarus again. Now this is Martha. Martha, who just moments ago confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the very Son of God and the very source of life. And she said, I believe this. And yet while she's confessed these truths, here in this moment, what she said she believed and how she acts here isn't matching up. And the reality is she still doubts whether or not Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead. She still thinks Lazarus is completely dead and gone. So what's the point of moving this stone? And in seeing Martha's response, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we profess truths about the God we worship, truths about Jesus, and then live completely contrary to what we say we believe about him? We claim that Jesus satisfies our souls and then we try living to satisfy our souls in this world instead. We claim that Jesus is good and kind and yet we immediately begin to doubt his goodness the moment we encounter hardships. We claim that Jesus is our comfort and wisdom, but instead of going to him for help, we run to other things and forget about him completely and utterly. We claim that Jesus is Lord over death. And yet in the face of death, like Martha, we doubt whether or not he will truly raise the dead in the end. And in all of this, we see that our faith in Jesus is often tainted with faithlessness. Our belief is mixed with unbelief. And we see this revealed here in Martha. So in these moments where we are confronted with our own unbelief, what do we do? What do we do when we realize that there is unbelief invading our hearts? In these moments when we are weak and unable, we must look again to Jesus and behold his glory. We must look to the one who is our source of life, our compassionate friend, and the one who is Lord over death. And in the case of Martha, this is exactly what Jesus helps her to do. He directs her attention to himself once more, and he reminds her to have faith in him. 
So with this reminder from Jesus, Martha obeys, and they remove the stone from the grave. And then Jesus, raising his eyes towards heaven, prays, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I say this. Why? So that they may believe you sent me. Jesus, in this prayer, makes it clear what he is about to do. He is about to do a great and mighty miracle. Why? So that they might believe in Jesus as the very Son of God, who is the resurrection and the life. And so let there be no mistake here this morning. This miracle here isn't done to impress the crowd. It is not being done to get people's favor. It is being done here so that they would place their ultimate faith, trust, and hope in Jesus Christ alone. And so having prayed this, he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. No doubt this would be quite the sight to see. To see a dead man walking. But just as God spoke in the beginning and life came about, so now we see Jesus speak and life enter Lazarus once more. And in this, we see again that Jesus is Lord over death. And while we may wonder what Lazarus felt, or what he was thinking at this point, we really don't know. John doesn't care to record Lazarus' thoughts or feelings because his main focus is not on Lazarus, but again, on Jesus, who is Lord over death itself. And so John wants us here this morning to reflect on this miracle from Jesus and to see something greater than even Lazarus' own rising from the dead. He wants us to see what Jesus will do for us. For just like Lazarus, Jesus would experience death and be buried in a tomb. But unlike the death that Lazarus would experience as a result of his sins, Jesus would experience a death for the sins of this world. Jesus would die a cruel, wretched death on the cross for each and every one of our sins against God. He would die in our place and he would pay the penalty for every wrong thought, action, and deed that we have ever done so that we might find life in him alone. And just like Lazarus, Jesus himself would be raised from the dead in glory and power. But unlike Lazarus, who would later die again in his body, Jesus would rise with a new and glorious body, a body immune to the effects of sickness and death. Jesus would rise triumphantly as Lord over death. And he would rise in victory, proving that our sins, our deepest problem that we've ever had, would be dealt with completely and entirely. So as we observe the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we realize 
that it points towards Jesus, who in the coming weeks would rise himself. And the resurrection of Christ would be our hope and our glory. And Lazarus points to that end. So perhaps this is the first time you heard about what Jesus did for you in the resurrection. And if this is the case, then know that Jesus calls you to place your full hope and trust in his victory on your behalf. Jesus died so that every sin we've ever committed, every wrong word we've said, every wrong thought we've ever thought would be forgiven by his shed blood on the cross. And his resurrection is the exclamation mark that those who trust in him are truly forgiven. It was enough. So if you've never trusted Christ and what he's done for you, Jesus calls you to look to him just as he does for Martha. Look to him and find this resurrection hope. And for those of us this morning who are aware of Christ's death and resurrection, then our call is to find hope again in Jesus and what he has accomplished on our behalf. For the resurrection provides hope in the midst of death. It provides perseverance in the midst of pain and calamity. And it provides joy and knowledge that one day Jesus will make all things new. Jesus is mending all that is broken. He is healing all that is wounded and marred by sin and death. And the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance that this great reversal will happen completely with his second coming. And so while we wait for this beautiful and glorious day when all wrongs will be made right and where every tear and sorrow wiped away once for all when death is abolished, we look to Jesus, our resurrected Lord and King, and we wait for him in expectation. So let us look to him now and long for that day when we will see our resurrected Lord and like him, become like him completely. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we praise your name for giving us Jesus, your son. We do not take lightly what he would go through for us, for he would experience the horrors of pain physical pain, emotional pain, and the very wrath at your hand. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us and that now because of him, we can call him our friend. We can call him our source of life. We can call him the Lord over death. So we ask that you would help us to trust Jesus as we should even here this morning. For we recognize that our faith is often tainted by faithlessness. Help us to believe who he is. And may we tr truly treasure Christ with all that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.